In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from Psalm 110. This psalm is titled, A Psalm of David. So it is clearly written by David, and also it is confirmed by our Lord Jesus Christ when he made reference to this psalm in Matthew 22, verse 43, and confirmed also by St. Peter in Acts chapter 2 and verse 34. So this psalm is written by David and not by any one of the singers. In spite of these facts and the confirmation of our Lord Jesus Christ and the confirmation of St. Peter and St. Paul, as I will explain, some scholars and commentators deny David's authorship. Some Jews, for example, have worked hard and in vain to give this psalm to a contrary meaning, to say David did not write it and it's not about the Messiah. Some have attributed the psalm to Ali'adhar, the servant of Abraham, and state that he composed it on the occasion when Abraham defeated the four kings in the valley of Shaveh in Genesis chapter 14. Others say it was done by David, but not as a prophecy about the Messiah, but in commemoration of his victory over the Philistines. And as I will explain, this psalm in no way it can be about David. Others make Solomon the author. Others refer it to Hezekiah. Others to the Rebbebel. But the mere reading of the psalm will show the insignificance of these false claims. Sometimes people of biblical criticism, they just want to cast a doubt on what is the holy tradition is saying. This remarkable psalm is one of the Old Testament passages most quoted in the New Testament. Some counted 27 direct quotations and indirect references to this psalm in the New Testament. And according to some scholar, this psalm is sung in the enthronement of any king of the descendants of David. But the subject of this psalm is so distinguished. The expressions of this psalm are so exalted. And the description in this psalm is so far above what can be applied to any human being. No history has ever mentioned a king to whom a literal application of this psalm can be made. So this psalm is only and only applicable to the Lord Jesus Christ and cannot be applied to any other, not even to David as a symbol of Christ as some other psalms revealed David just as a symbol of Christ. The king who is described in this psalm, number one is David's Lord. Number two sits at the right hand of God, a conqueror reigning at Jerusalem, king from all eternity, 
having an everlasting priesthood, judge of all nations, prevailing over all rulers. Can you tell me any earthly king that has all these characteristics? Where has there ever appeared a king in whom all these characters met? So this psalm can be applied only to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his everlasting priesthood and government, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Jews who lived in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ also believed this psalm to be written by David, and it spoke of the Messiah alone. When our Lord quoted this psalm in Matthew 22, verse 42, and drew argument from it about his mission, the Jews, even those who did not believe in Jesus Christ, they did not attempt to deny that this psalm is written by David and it is about the Messiah. Also, St. Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 34, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, in Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 10, applies this psalm to show that Jesus is the Messiah. St. John Chrysostom says, Let us be alert, I beseech you, and concentrate. The psalm tells us of extremely important principles. In fact, it joins battle with Jews. And this psalm actually rebukes the Jews. Paul of Samusata, the followers of Arius, of Marthion, the many chains, and those professing unbelief in the resurrection. So this psalm actually can refute all these heresies. The Jews do not accept the first verse fabricating some other meaning by contrast. The Jews don't accept the first verse of this psalm and try to interpret it differently in order to deny the divinity of Christ. St. John continue, let us first refute their argument and establish our own. St. Augustine also says, this psalm is one of those promises, surely and openly prophesying our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ asked the Jews whose son they alleged Christ to be, and they had replied, the son of David, he at once replied to their answer, How then does David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord? Jesus asked, If then David in the spirit call the Messiah Lord, how is he his son? With this verse, this psalm begins. The Lord has said to my Lord, sits at the right hand. And also this psalm, we pray it in the ninth hour of the Agbay. It's a short psalm, seven verses. The verse one to three, the Messiah is the Lord and King. 4 to 7, the Messiah is the priest or the high priest and the judge. Verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand 
till I make your enemies your footstool. So David prophetically revealed the word of the Lord to the Messiah, David's Lord. So the first Lord here is God the Father. The second Lord is the Messiah, the God's Son. In Hebrew, the first word is Yahweh. Second word is Adonai. Yahweh refers to God the Father. Adonai refers to God the Son. He speaks with authority of a prophet. David speaks with authority of a prophet who is mindful of having received a message from God. The Holy Spirit inspired David and David is uttering this message. The Lord said, God the Father said to my Lord, to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. David in the Spirit saw the Messiah ascending into heaven after his death and resurrection and tells us the words of the Father when God the Father invited the Son to sit beside him and reign along with him. This is clear not only from the context but especially by how this verse is quoted in the New Testament. When Peter spoke about the ascension of Christ, he quoted this verse. The psalm cannot refer to David himself, as if God has said to David, sit at my right hand. Definitely not. Nor was there anyone on earth in the time of David to whom it could be applicable, or anyone whom David would call him Lord or superior. If therefore the psalm was written by David, it must have reference to the Messiah only, because the Messiah is the one who is superior to David, his Lord and his sovereign. And when this passage was quoted by Christ when arguing with the Jews, they did not attempt to question its reference to the Messiah. Also, St. Peter quote this verse on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, explaining how David prophesied the deity and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ based on this verse. Also, St. Paul referred to this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 25, explaining the rule and dominion of Jesus the Messiah. St. Paul also quoted the same verse in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, referring to the superiority of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, above and over any angel. The fact that Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, spoke to one that David himself called him Lord, Adonai, demonstrate both Yahweh and Adonai the Father and the Son mentioned in this verse are God. So the Father is God, the Son is God. As we say in the creed about the Son, true God of true God. Of course, they are one. Yahweh, specifically God the Father, spoke to the Messiah, specifically God the Son, telling him to take his enthroned place as we read in Ephesians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 8, until the Father provided the victory for the Son. 
till I make your enemies your footstool. The seat at the king's right hand was the place of honor. But here actually more than mere honor is implied. Here the, this king, the Messiah, is to share God's throne, to be next to him in dignity, to be supported by all the force of his authority and power. Also sitting signifies peace and supreme power. Angels are standing around the, the throne of God before whom the angels stand. But sitting signifies supreme power, peace, which Christ was to enjoy. And sitting at my right hand indicate equality, an equal share in that supreme power enjoyed by God the Father. Some people will say, what's new? We know that the Son is God, and He actually shared in that supreme power with God the Father. I want you to focus with me. In this psalm and in the New Testament, we need to differentiate between Son, the Son, before His incarnation, and the Son after His incarnation. After His incarnation, He became man, and the divinity is united with the humanity without mingling, without confusion, without alteration. So when St. Paul, for example, says about Christ, he was exalted and seated at the right hand, he's not speaking about the Son before his incarnation, but he is in speaking about the incarnated God-man, our Lord, God and Savior and King of us all, Jesus Christ. So the Son as far as his divine nature was concerned, had that equality at all times, from eternity to eternity. But when we speak about the incarnated God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ, after his humiliation unto death, and after he died on the cross, and was buried, and resurrected, and rose from the dead, now he is exalted to be seated at the right hand of the Father. As St. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 from verse 9 to 11, he is speaking here about the incarnated Son of God, not the Son before his incarnation. He said, therefore God, God the Father, also has highly exalted him. Who is him here? The incarnated Son of God. And given him, given the incarnated Son of God, the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So sitting on the right hand of God is the same as being in the glory and the majesty of God the Father. And that glory consists in having a name above every name at which every name, every knee shall bow, worship him as a true God. Here it says the Father said to the Son, to the incarnate Son of God, 
sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. St. Paul quoted this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, and he said about the Son, the incarnated Son of God, He must reign till He, the Father, has put all enemies under His feet, under the feet of the Son, the incarnated Son of God. The word which proves actually that the expression set at my right hand means nothing more or less than share my sovereign power. That's why St. Paul said he must reign, reign as a king. St. Paul in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, when he was speaking about the superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ above the angels, because he is the Lord of the angels, and the angels worship him, he said, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they the angels, not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister? Now St. Paul is proving the difference between Christ and the angels. The angels are merely ministers and servants, not allowed to sit, but obliged to stand in readiness for the execution of their Lord's commands. While Christ, as the Lord and as a King, He sits with His Father above all creatures. St. Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 33 to verse 35 said, Being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this, the Holy Spirit, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. St. Peter here making very clear, this psalm is not about David. David did not ascend to heaven. It's about Jesus Christ, about the incarnated Son of God. St. Peter clearly says here that sitting at the right hand of God means that Jesus having ascended into heaven and ruling and governing in all places as God only can rule and govern. So Jesus is God. Jesus is God. How we understand that the Father said to the incarnated Son of God, Till I make your enemies your footstool. Does this mean after he make the enemies the fo- under the footstool of the sun, the sun will be not sitting at the right hand? Definitely not. Because the kingdom of Christ shall have no end. The word tell does not imply that Christ's reign was only to hold until his enemies should be subjected. It doesn't mean this. But it means that his kingdom would be always extended more and more until as much as not one single enemy, not bowing the knee to Christ, not one single enemy would not remain. All the enemies will bow the knees and confess that Jesus is God. All the enemies. So Christ's kingdom will be completed on the last day 
when every knee shall bow those that are in heaven or in earth or under the earth even people in hell will confess that Jesus is God and they will bow the knees to him all his enemies until now are not yet made under his footstool as St. Paul observed in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8 but now we don't yet see all things put under him so the completion of the kingdom of Christ will be in the last day but why the father put the enemies under the, the feet of the son does this mean father is more powerful than the son definitely not why is the assertion till I make your enemies under your footstool attributed to God the father we should know that everything done by the father is also done by the son but the father is made to act here why in order to reward the obedience of the son as St. Paul says therefore God also has highly exalted him how the father exalted the son for his obedience he obeyed until death the death of the cross by making all the enemies under his footstool everything implying power is usually attributed to the father although the son has the same power so David having any spirit heard the father saying to the son sit at my right hand now in verse 2 he's addressing the son he said to the son the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion rule in the midst of your enemies what does it mean the Lord God the Father shall send the rod of the strength of the son out of Zion then he told him as a king rule in the midst of your enemies now David is addressing the son and in the same spirit of prophecy shows how the spread and the extent of Christ's kingdom on earth was to begin the rod here is a symbol of authority like the rod of the king and power also an instrument of chastisement the kingdom of Christ is not of this world but a spiritual kingdom so the rod is not literal a rod but it is the power of the word of God preached by Christ and by the apostles and the ministers and through the Holy Spirit by which the Messiah set up and established his kingdom the Lord shall send the rod shall send the word of the kingdom and the word of the kingdom is the strength of the kingdom of Christ the word of the Bible the word of God and he will send it out of Zion because the church started from Zion hence this gospel is called the word of the kingdom as we read in Matthew chapter 13 verse 19 when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart the word of God is the word of kingdom it is the rod of the kingdom out of Zion because the kingdom of Christ started in Jerusalem in Zion the city of David for he was Jesus the son of David but his authority is not limited to Israel 
it would extend to the entire world, dominating all the kings and nations of the earth, giving him rule even over all his enemies. Rule in the midst of your enemies. His rod of strength out of Zion is the preaching of the Holy Gospel that started from Zion, then spread to the whole world. As the Lord said after his resurrection, it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, at Zion. How can we understand in the midst of your enemies? The church is the body of Christ. So the church actually, which is the kingdom of Christ, exists among the enemies of Christ. However prosperous and triumphant the church may be, but always, always the church will be surrounded by enemies, pagan, Jews, heretics, bad Christian, in our time atheists, as long as the church sojourns here on earth. But at the end of the world, when the good shall come to be separated from the bad, the kingdom of Christ will be no longer in the midst of the enemies, but will rise above the enemies and be exalted over all her enemies. But others interpret the word rule in the midst of your enemies differently. And both interpretations are correct. As if it is a commission to the Son to set up the kingdom in the very midst of those who were his enemies. Like the pagans, like the Gentiles were enemies, but now they became Christian. So in the midst of your enemies, in the heart of those who had been and were rebellious, His kingdom is set up not by destroying the enemies, but by subduing the enemies so that they become his willing servants, they become the servants of Christ. So the commission of Christ is to make the enemies his friends. Mere power may crush the people. It requires more than that to make rebels willingly submissive have them voluntarily obey. It takes the power of love. St. John Chrysostom comments on the word rod and says, while the rod sometimes is disciplinary, sometimes on the other hand, it is supportive and a symbol of kingship. For proof that it has both meaning, can be a discipline or support, Listen to the inspired author, David, saying in Psalm 23, Your rod and your staff, they comforted me. Here he called his power a rod with which the disciples traversed the world, correcting people's behavior and leading them from some mindless evil to the rational nature of human being. So say this power is the power that actually supported the disciples in preaching the word of the kingdom, correcting people's behavior, leading them to repentance, changing them from mindless evil, evil people with no mind, into rational nature of human being who willingly and voluntarily submit 
and obey God. Verse 3, your people, the people of Christ, shall be volunteers. They will serve you willingly, not by oppression. In the day of your power, when you reign over them, in the beauties of holiness, when you reign in all the beauties of holiness and the virtues, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The number of the people will be like the dew. Your offspring will be like the dew. And they will be powerful. That's why it's called your children, the children of your youth. And from the womb of the morning means from the beginning of Christianity. When the morning of Christianity, the new covenant start to shine on the whole world. Because before this, we're sitting in darkness and the shadow of death. In verse 3, the psalmist sets forth the honor of Christ's kingdom, the church, in relation to the number of the people, to be like the Jew. Their prompt and cheerful obedience to his commands, they are volunteers. Your people shall be volunteers. In the full sense of the word, Messiah can only rule over willing hearts. We worship him willingly, not out of oppression. We worship him and we serve him because we love him, not because we are crushed or forced to serve him. Your people shall not be yours by a forced and false obedience. No, as those who are subject to or conquered by earthly princes. People may be submit to earthly rulers out of fear, but we submit to Christ out of love. Your people shall most willingly and readily and cheerfully obey all your commandments without any dispute or delay or reservation, and they shall not need to be pressed to his service who are not pressed to serve the Lord. They are willing to serve him, to suffer loss of all things for him, as St. Paul said, whatever was gained to me, I consider it rubbish. Your people are willing to deny themselves and to take the cross willingly and to follow you. There have been much said about people's free will. Because if men or people are forced to obey, then why they are obeying? It is the forcing power that obeys. And men show only the effect of this powerful force. They are not obeying willingly. And if men are not obeying willingly, means they are incapable of doing and willing good and rejecting and not willing evil. They are forced to do this because they are incapable of being saved as a rational being. And this is the main difference between humans and animals. We are rational because we have free will. We obey God willingly. We do what's good willingly. We abstain from what's evil willingly. And if the people act only under a powerful force, they should not be condemned. Why should be condemned? If I am forced to do what's evil, why I should be condemned? Why God will condemn the evil if they are forced actually to do what's evil? 
your people will be volunteers in the days of your power when Christ takes into his hand the rod of his strength when he sets up his kingdom in the world and put forth his mighty power in the preaching of the word and winning souls to himself by the rod of his strength by the word of the kingdom Jesus became king on the cross he reigned on the cross that's why Saint Jerome established his kingdom his king from eternity so Jesus established his kingdom on the cross Saint Jerome said the day of his power is the day of his crucifixion and the day of his crucifixion when he shook the earth darkened the sun opened the graves split the rocks broke down the everlasting gates of Hades and set the captives free the Hebrew word translated power is the word for host or army so we can read it your people shall be volunteers in the day of your army which means who is the army the, the Messiah's people are gathered together as volunteers army volunteering army willing army to preach the word of God some commentator interpret the day of your power will be the last day when his strength will move the heaven darken the sun shake the earth raise the dead and gather all to his judgment then he said your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power in the beauties of holiness what does it mean in the beauties of holiness when you are adorned with all the beautiful and glorious robes of righteousness and true holiness by which all new men us the true Christian will be closed also and with the various gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit which are beautiful in the eyes of God in the beauty of holiness the graces and the gift of the Holy Spirit this verse we read it in the Septuagint and also in the Agbaya with thee is the beginning in the day of your power with you is the beginning of your kingdom on earth in the day of your power in the day of your crucifixion in the splendor of your sins when your sins will be adorned with the gift of the Holy Spirit from the womb either the womb of God as I will explain or the womb of Saint Mary before the light of the morning have I begotten thee I begotten you from the womb before the light of the morning this expression according to Augustine carry literal and symbolic meaning and both are fulfilled literal because the Lord was born at night from the womb of Virgin Mary and the testimony of the shepherd asserted that he was born at night because they were keeping watch over their flock at night that's why we do the prayer of the nativity feast it, it should be a vision and actually before the morning star it should end around 3 or 4 in the morning now we end it after 12 that's why some people who are trying to end it before 12 or ending like at 10 or 8 or 7 or whatever they are actually contradicting this prophecy 
that the Lord was born before the morning star. That's why our church insists that the Feast of Nativity, liturgy, should end after midnight, not before. Christ exists as before his incarnation. He exists before all creation, for creation of anything, even before the angels, because all things were made through the Son of God. The Almighty Father says, I begotten you, not as he did all other creatures from nothing, but I begotten you from the womb. So Jesus is not created like all other creatures. But the Father says, I begotten you from the womb, from the Father, from the bosom of the Father, from his own womb, as his true and natural Son, one essence with the Father, before any creatures, before all the ages. So before, from the womb, church fathers very properly use this expression as a proof of the divinity of Christ. Because if, if Christ was a creature, the Father could not say about the Son, I have begotten you out of the womb. God the Father does not anywhere says that the heaven or earth were born out of his womb, only to the Son, because he is a true God from true God, or of true God. And this doesn't mean there is time separation. You know, as the light comes from the Son in the same moment, so the Son is begotten from the Father before all ages. Then who are, you have the dew of your youth. What does it mean? You have the dew of your youth. The believers are the dew of your youth. They are your children, who are children of God. As the human nature of our Lord was born in the womb of Virgin Saint Mary, so the followers of God are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, but by the Divine Spirit, who are born of God in baptism. So the extraordinary increase in the number of Christ's people is compared to the youth, strong. As men are astonished at seeing the earth irrigated and refreshed by dew, when we wake up in the morning and we find the dew spread all over the earth, David declares that a countless offspring shall be born to Christ, or to God, who shall be spread over the whole earth. The multitude who, in so short a time, have been gathered together and subjected to Christ's power is incredible. In the first day in Pentecost, 3,000, very, very soon became 5,000, and then they multiplied quickly. This has been accomplished by the sound of the gospel alone, in, the, in spite of the difficult opposition of the whole world, the Jews and the Gentiles. Any person at any age, when he returns to Christ, are considered children newly born because of the spiritual birth. We read this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. To the same purpose are the words of Isaiah, when he said, 
shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his head. So from verse 1 to 3, he spoke about the Messiah, the Lord and the King. From verse 4 to 7, he speaks about the Messiah, the priest and the judge. So after he spoke about him as king and God, now speaking as priest or thy priest and judge. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. David now passes from royalty and divinity of Christ to the priesthood and shows that Christ is a priest forever, not by reason of his succession to Aaron, no, but as a priest directly appointed by God, of whom Melchizedek was a type. So Melchizedek is a type of Christ. This verse is a proof that the person here is spoken of is none other than Christ, to whom God said you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, only to Christ. So the king, verse 1 to 3, is also the high priest by an absolute divine declaration. You are a priest forever and is affirmed in the most solemn matter possible by an oath. The Lord has sworn so there is an oath here, oath of God who cannot lie. He who knows all things from the beginning cannot repent or relent his purpose. The Lord has his word and will not relent. As we read in the book of Numbers, he knows everything from the beginning, so he cannot repent or relent. This is the oath of God the Father regarding his son and will not relent will never change its purpose. It is perfectly without condition and without contingency. Nothing is left here to the will of man or angel. He is a priest forever. Christ or the Son shall be incarnate and the gospel of his salvation shall be preached over the whole earth. He vowed, the Father vowed, that the Messiah have an eternal priesthood and that was after the order of Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? Melchizedek was the king of Jerusalem, Salim, the priest of God, the Most High. He appeared in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. After Abraham defeated the confederation of kings who took his nephew Lot as a captive, Abraham met with a mysterious priest named Melchizedek, who appears suddenly in the book of Genesis. Melchizedek means king, Melchizedek, king of righteousness, who was also king over the city of Jerusalem, Salim, which means peace. So he's king of peace and king of righteousness. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And since he blessed Abraham, then he is greater than Abraham. And Abraham gave Melchizedek the tithe. So he's the priest of Abraham because we give the tithes to the priests. And there is no mention of any father or mother of Melchizedek, although the genealogy was very important in the Old Testament. But why the Holy Spirit completely 
hid the genealogy of Malshi Sadiq in order to be a symbol, a type of Christ. And he appears without any genealogy. And with this oath, God revealed that there is another order of priesthood apart from the priestly order of Aaron. The Israelite priests were all descendant from Aaron and served in the tabernacle or the temple, offering sacrifices and conducted ceremony according to the law. In the Old Testament, you cannot be a priest and a king in the same time. Priest from tribe of Levi, king from tribe of Judah. You cannot be both. But here he spoke about the Messiah as a king and as a high priest in the same time. Here we see that God established another priestly order, is the order of Melchizedek. And the promise of an eternal priesthood correspond rather to the promise of eternal dominion. This Messiah will have eternal dominion and eternal priesthood. He is king forever. His kingdom shall have no end. And his priesthood is forever. Now as Christ is to be said, he is a priest forever. Why? Because he offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross. And this effect of this one sacrifice, which he is offered on the cross when he offered his body, is forever. The effect of this sacrifice is eternal. That's why his priesthood is eternal. And St. Paul, in the letter to Hebrews, dwells upon this verse in his explanation of the typical significance of the priesthood of Melchizedek. How the priesthood of Melchizedek is a type, a symbol to the priesthood of Christ. Quoting it to illustrate the divine appointment of Christ to his high priestly office and the eternal duration of that office. St. Paul said, no one can be a priest unless he is called. No one can take this honor by himself. So the question here, when the Messiah is called to priesthood in this psalm, the Lord has sworn and will have no regret that you are a priest forever after the order of Merchizah. So here Christ is appointed as the high priest forever by God the Father. He is living forever daily through the hands of the priest of his church on the altar every day. Behold, Emmanuel, our God, is with us today on this table. Now the priest of the New Testament who succeed each other and offer the Eucharist daily. St. John Chrysostom says, what was the reason for his saying according to the order of Melchizedek with the Eucharist in mind? Because he too offered, he, Melchizedek, offered bread and wine to Abraham. See, God orchestrating everything. Melchizedek actually offered bread and wine. Then David speaks about the Messiah before the Messiah is born. And he's telling him, you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Then Christ gives us his body and blood in the form of bread and wine. So Christ is both king and priest. And he offered bread and wine at his last supper. That's his holy body under the appearance of bread and his blood under the appearance of wine. 
And he is the priest, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Nor is his priestly office confined to one temple or tabernacle, like in the Old Covenant. But as Malachi prophesied, from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations. Verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. Some understand verse 5 as God the Father stands at the Messiah's right hand to protect and to defend him and give him victory in the battle. The Lord is at your right hand. The Lord God the Father is at your right hand, at the right hand of the Messiah. Others see it as Christ being seated at the right hand of his Father will defeat his adversaries. St. Jerome says, the psalm says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And now he says, the Lord is at your right hand. So if the son is sitting at the right hand of the father, how does David say now that the father sits at the right hand of the son? This I say to confirm clearly that the son is equal to the father. And the right hand, God doesn't have right or left, but it means the power. So the son sits at the right hand equal to the father. The father at the right hand of the son equal to the son. So as St. Jerome said, to confirm clearly that the son is equal to the father. All would be subdued before him, all the kings. That's why he said he shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. So all would be subdued before him and none would be able to stand before him and he would reign over all the earth. He shall execute kings. This is to be understood of the kings and princes that stood up and set themselves against Christ and against God. Maybe Herod and Pontius Pilate who both died shameful death also as Another Herod that set himself again in the apostle and the church and how the angel of the Lord hit him. He died at once and the worms ate his body as we read in Acts chapter 12 verse 1. Also kings here, king of heathen, kings and emperors who persecuted Christian as Diocletian, Maximians and others who are represented as fleeing to rocks and mountains to hide them from the Lamb on the great day of his wrath. As we read in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 15, they will hide and they will say to the mountains, cover us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. It may also point to the anti-Christian kings that shall be gathered together to the battle of the Lord God Almighty and shall be overcome and slain by Christ, as we read in Revelation chapter 16, verse 14. St. Jerome says, The devil showed him, showed Christ, all the kingdom of the world in a moment of a time, and said to Christ, All this authority I will give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, 
and I give it to whomever I wish. Now Christ shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. So the devil here is lying. Having told us how Christ would deal for the present with his enemies, now in verse 6, he tells us how he deals on the day of judgment with all his enemies. Here in the present time, and as I said, many kings who persecuted Christians, they actually were killed in, in a shameful death until our present time, like what happened in October 1981. Verse 6, that is about the judgment day. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. In his conquest, the Messiah will exercise his authority over all nations, bringing his judgment. Another interpretation of verse 6 would be that Christ will rule among the Gentiles, making them, through his gospel, obedient by word and deed. And so, reigning in their heart by the Holy Spirit and grace, and by making many disciples among them, enlarge his dominion from sea to sea and from river to the end of the earth. He shall judge among the nations, can means God actually will rule over ourselves as our judge, and we are the Gentiles. He shall fill the places with the body, signifying his victory and the overthrow of the whole world. It would be as if the body of the slain in battle filled the land or filled the valleys of the earth. Here the victory of Christ is symbolized by all the places will be filled with the dead bodies of his enemies. Some commentators think that this seemed to anticipate the slaughter at the battle of Armageddon. Then he said he shall execute the heads of many countries. He will humble and defeat all the proud that now with with unyielding heads are against him. So now many people, they don't bow to Christ. But these heads that refuse to bow to Christ, he will execute. He will trample on their pride when he shall make their weakness known to the whole world and thus render them both shameful and confused. Such is the meaning of execute the heads. Of many countries, because the truly humble and godly in this world are very few indeed when compared to the proud and the haughty who are nearly countless. Few will enter into the kingdom of God. Also, it may mean Satan, the God of this world, the wicked one, under whom the world lies, and who has deceived the inhabitants of the earth and rules them. On the cross, Christ has wounded and bruised Satan, even his head, destroyed him 
and all his power, schemes, and works. Verse 7, which is the last verse, He shall drink of the brook by the wayside, therefore he shall lift up the head. He now gives a reason for Christ being given with such power as to be able to break kings, to judge nations, to fear ruins, to crush heads by saying he shall drink of the brook by the wayside. What does this mean? As if he said with the apostle, he humbled, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside means what? This seems to be drawn from the conduct of brave and powerful generals who, when in hot pursuit of the enemy, don't allow themselves to be diverted from their purpose by attending to luxuries, but without kneeling down are content to quench their thirst by drinking of the stream which they are passing by. The powerful generals, they don't go and seek, you know, a table and dinner to drink in a luxurious way. But while they are in the battle, running away, they actually drink from the streams even without kneeling down. There is no time to kneel down. They will lick like the dogs. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament? when God said to Gideon how to take the, the mighty men, that is the story. So it seems that David figuratively attribute military skills and bravery to Christ, declaring that he would not take time to refresh himself, but would hastily drink of the river which might come in his way. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. That's why he shall lift up the head. He will be victorious. The Son of God, through his incarnation, came down this stream in the way that's during his life on earth and drank the muddy water of this brook in experiencing suffering. So the way here he shall drink of the brook, it is the suffering by the wayside in his incarnation on the earth. He descended into the very depth of the brook through his passion, the waters of which, instead of contributing to his refreshment, only increased his pain and suffering, because that is the muddy water of the world. In consideration then of his humiliation, freely and willingly enduring for the glory of the Father and the salvation of mankind, why Christ humbled himself to the death of the cross for our salvation and to glorify the Father. That's why afterward he shall lift up the head when God exalted him. He ascended into the heaven. He sat at the right hand of the Father, was made judge of the living and the dead. St. Augustine explained, he has not disdained to drink of this brook To drink of this brook was to him to be born and to die, 
What this brook has is his birth and death. Christ assumed this. He was born, he died. That's drinking of the brook. Therefore, has lifted up his head, he was ascended to heaven. Because he was humble and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, he was exalted above every name. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ, the Lord, is in the glory of God the Father. St. John Chrysostom says, Therefore he shall lift up the head. That is the fruit of his humility and difficult life because he just drank from the brook, his humility, his suffering. These words refer not to divinity, however, to his humanity, his suffering, drinking from a stream being raised up, now exalted, ascended to them. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.